all my young friends in the $25 seats. I was talking in upstate New York on one occasion and I went into the barber shop in the afternoon of the lecture. The barber did not recognize me. He said, are you going to that lecture tonight by Bishop Sheen? I said, yes. He said, do you have a ticket? I said, no, I don't. Well, he said, all the tickets have been sold. You probably will have to stand. I said, you know, it's a peculiar thing that every time I go to hear that man talk, I always have to stand. <laughs> I overheard a conversation on the plane the other day. Two women in front of me. And one woman said to the other, Oh, what a beautiful diamond you have, Mrs. Plotnick. Yes, Mrs. Plotnick said, It's a 40-carat diamond. I'd love to have a diamond like that. No, said Mrs. Plotnick, It's like the Hope Diamond. It has a curse on it. What's the curse? Mr. Plotnick. certain parish, a couple had taken a lottery ticket, and they won. The husband, however, was getting along in years and was suffering from heart trouble. And the wife was afraid that if she told her husband that he had won $50,000, that he would really die of heart trouble. So she went to the pastor and she said, Father, I wish you would break the news to him in such a way that it would not kill him. So the pastor spoke about many odd things and finally he said to the man, Suppose you won $50,000 in a lottery, what would you do with it? Oh, he said, I'd give it to you, Father. Then the priest dropped dead. <laughs> Here's a story for the little children. There's a restaurant in New York that promises to give a thousand dollars to anyone who can order something they do not have in the restaurant. This man went in and ordered an elephant ear on raisin bread. The waiter said, do you want an Indian elephant ear? or an African elephant ear. Oh, he said, I don't care, as long as it's an elephant ear on raisin bread. The waiter came back with a thousand dollars. 
He said, you didn't have the elephant ear? Oh, yes, we had that, but we didn't have the raisin bread. There perhaps is no word more often used in our language than the word love. And today it is so often stated, anything is all right provided you love. Now let me tell you that is not true. Because love is not quite that simple. Unfortunately, we have only one word in the English language for love. And think of the ways we have to use it. I love the New York Mets. I love pickles. I love chickens. I love God. See how confusing it is? The Greeks had three different words for love. And I'm going to give you those three Greek words tonight. I asked Monsignor before I came out, how many in his parish and in this area did he think had forgotten their classical Greek? He said, not over twelve. <laughs> so if the rest of you will excuse, I will interpret for that, those twelve the meaning of the three Greek words. The first Greek word for love is eros, E-R-O-S, eros. It simply means friendship, human love. Eros was that little Greek god that used to shoot arrows into the earth to make the earth fertile. Eros was not something that, that pushed us toward an object, it was something that pulled us, it was attractive. For example, the love of a person, the love of art, the love of philosophy, the love of the good life. All that was Eros. To give you an example of that love, here is the engagement of G.K. Chesterton. If there are any unmarried men in this audience who have not yet proposed and who intend to, I would suggest that they take this down in shorthand. And all of you married women will regret that your proposal was not in this language. Chesterton wrote to his future wife, or spoke to her, and said, There are four great lamps of thanksgiving burning before me. The first that I was born out of the same earth as you. Two. I have tried to love everything in the universe as a remote preparation for loving you. Three, I have never run after strange women. You cannot understand how much this prepares a man for true love. Four, my life ends here. It has led me to you. That is Eros. I once asked a husband what he would like to be if he could come back to this earth two years after he died, and he said, my wife's second husband. And that is Eros. And I once heard a man pay a toast to his wife at table. You have to wait until the end of this. 
or it's a kind of a shocking toast. He raised his glass and said, here's to a face that would stop a clock and bid all time stand still to contemplate her beauty. That's Eros. Then came Freud. Freud changed Eros into the erotic. Then Eros meant sexy. And this became then the modern understanding of love. The Greeks never intended that that kind of love should so degenerate. And the new erotic love takes the fig leaf that once used to be put in Greek sculpture over the secret parts of man and woman and it puts it over the face so that the person is not loved but only the experience. You drink the water, you forget the glass. And this is modern love, eros, erotic rather. Now we come to the second Greek word for love. And you all know it, everyone. It is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. You know philia because you know Philadelphia. Adelphos in Greek is brother and philia love, and hence Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philanthropic. Philia love, anthropos man, love of humanity. Philia is not a love of person for person. Philia is a love for all humanity. Regardless of race, creed, color. Simply because people are made to the image and likeness of God. That is philia. Now you say, but I can't like everyone. That's true. Because liking is in the emotions, in the feelings. But we can love everyone because love is in the will and it can be commanded. Hence our blessed Lord said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You understand the difference now between liking and loving? I can make it a little clearer this way. I don't like chicken. Monsignor had chicken for dinner one day. Now why don't I, 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 why don't I like chicken? Well, because when I was a boy, my father used to send me out to a farm that he owned about 30 miles outside of the city. And the tenant farmer, in order to get in good with the Sheen kids, gave us chicken in those days every day except Friday. So that in the course of my young life, I rang the necks of 48,310 hens. 
At night, I don't have nightmares. I have night hens. I have visions of headless chicks squirming in barnyard dust, so I don't like chicken. But if you invited me to dinner and you had only chicken, and you would have been very embarrassed if I didn't eat, I would eat the chicken. I would love it because I could command myself to eat it. That's the difference between liking and loving. We may not be able to like everyone, but we can love them. We can get above our emotional attitudes. There was a novelist in Russia at the close of the last century by the name of Dostoevsky, who gave us an interesting story about this kind of love. It seems as if an angel went down to hell and asked an old woman in hell, have you ever in your life done a good deed for anyone? She says, yes. Once I gave a carrot to a beggar. Very well, said the angel. I am going to let down a carrot into hell. And you get hold of it, and I will pull you out. The angel let down that carrot, and the old lady grabbed hold of it. And the angel began pulling out the old lady. And, of course, thousands of people grabbed a hold of the old lady to get out of hell. Jesus, get off. This is for me. And then they all fell back into hell. Because there was no love of fellow men. I once asked a missionary in the Pacific Islands, what was the greatest virtue of the people? Well, he said, I can tell you the greatest virtue in terms of the greatest vice. It is the sin of kaipo, the sin of eating alone. They would go without food for three or four days until they found someone to share it. That is philia. An East Indian by the name of Singh, a Christian, wanted to go into Tibet to evangelize. He needed a guide to take him over the Himalaya mountains. And they had gone up a short distance, and they were cold and tired, and they sat down on the snow. And Singh said to the Tibetan guide, I think I hear someone moaning down there in the crevice. The Tibetan guide said, don't be silly. We're almost dead ourselves. But Singh found a man in the crevice, crevice, pulled him out, took him to the village beneath, and was refreshed by that act of charity, came back and found that the Tibetan guide was where he left him, frozen to death. He had not warmed himself by an act of charity. This is the supreme act of philanthropy. I told you about this friend of mine who was 14 years in the communist prison. 
And he was so much beaten by the communists that he developed lung trouble and tuberculosis and was considered at one time the sickest man in the prison. A new prisoner was brought in who hid in his heel a lump of sugar. He took the lump of sugar out of the heel in prison and said to the other prisoners, who needs this most? And they said, give it to Richard Wormbrand. It was given to my friend, and he said, I immediately thought of others who needed that sugar. I hadn't seen sugar in six years. But I put the sugar on the bed next to me. Two years later, that sugar had gone the round of all of the prisoners and came back again to his bed. And then he started on another round. Imagine all of these victims of the communist persecution in their adversity being so devoted one to another. About eight years ago, I was on a plane going from New York to Chicago. And as the plane took off, the stewardess sat down alongside of me. She was a ravishingly beautiful girl. Celibacy doesn't blind us, you know. I can look at the menu without ordering. She said, do you remember me? I said, no, I don't. I ought to, but I don't. Well, she said, two years ago on this plane, I sat with you for 20 minutes. And I remember every word you said. What did I say? Well, you began by saying you are a very beautiful girl. Did you know that of all the gifts that God gives, the one that he gets back last and least of all is the gift of beauty? He gives money and owners use it for the poor. Gives the gift of song and people sing for his glory. But too often when God gives beauty, he gets back nothing but a pile of old bones. So, inasmuch as you are so exceptionally endowed, why don't you give your beauty to people who have never seen anything beautiful? That's what you said. Well, I said, that sounds just exactly like me. That's what I would say. <laughs> she said, I've had two years to think it over. And now I'm ready to do anything. When? Now. All right, come to my office and I will tell you where you are going. She said, tell me now, I'm ready to go. All right, you're going to a leper colony in Vietnam. So I sent her to a leper colony in Vietnam. She has a little jeep, drives around the villages and searches, particularly under bridges, because when lepers are driven out of villages, they hide under the bridges. And then she takes them to a leprosarium and with a doctor, 
cares for these people. And in one of her letters she said, I do not know whether they ever think that they are looking at anything beautiful, but I know that I am the gratitude of these good people. This is philia, a second kind of love. Now we come to the third. I was just looking at my watch to see how long I've been talking. I've been talking about over 20 minutes. And You know, it's amazing. Isn't it the way they stay awake? Huh? I don't understand it. I know if I were down there listening to me, I would go to sleep. There was an Irish family, my dear young people, who moved from Dublin to Boston. And one of the sons moved to Chicago. The father died in Boston. And the son in Chicago wired his brother in Boston and said, what were father's last words? And the telegram came back. Father had no last words. Mother was with him to the end. So you'll probably wonder whether father has last words. Now we're coming to the third Greek word. And there's no English equivalent for this, so you have to learn the word. A-G-A-P-E. Agape or agape as it is sometimes pronounced. A-G-A-P-E. It was used before Christ, but never with any fixed meaning. But when a new love came to this earth, the love of God for man, the word eros would not do. The word philia would not do. So the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to seek about for some other word that would express this abounding, boundless love of God for man. And they hit upon the word agapine, agapine in the verb form, and it is used 250 times in the New Testament. The reading that you heard tonight from John. If you went into the original Greek, you would find that that word was agape, love. Pick up the 13th chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The whole 13th chapter is on love. It's the most beautiful passage on love in the world. And the Greek word is the one I gave you. You see, we had to have a new word. The world had never thought of sacrificial love. It's easy to love those who love you, as our Lord said. 
but to love when you're unloved. That's heroic. God loves me. Now, I am not particularly lovable. And God loves you. Now, maybe two or three of you will admit, too, that you're not particularly lovable either. But God loves you anyway. Why does he love you? Why does he love me? He puts his love into us. That's why. Therefore, we become lovable. As a mother, for example, will put her love into a child, regardless of what that child is, whether useful or not. So God puts his love into us. To give you a, an example of what this love is like, because it's so unearthly. Well, suppose a lifeguard at a beach is asked if there was a very beautiful girl drowning out there on the surf, would you risk your life to save her? He very likely would say, yes, I would, I would. Particularly if she's very beautiful, I would risk my life. Well, suppose there's a person out there dying in the surf who did you and your family a lot of harm. Would you rescue that person? He would think about it. Now, that's the way God loved us. When we were unlovable, when we were his enemies, he loved us. Suppose this were a courtroom. The judge is here seated on the bench. Before him is his own son, who committed murder. There is no doubt whatever of the son's guilt. He had murdered a boy. The father is bound to execute justice and he condemns his son to death. Immediately after rendering the sentence, he steps down from the bench and says to his son, I will die for you. That would be mercy. He would be just when he was sentencing him to death, merciful when he took his place. That is what God does for us, but that is not the total picture. Suppose at the moment that the son was condemned to death, that the boy who had been murdered walked in alive. The son would say, you say that I killed this boy? You sentenced me to death? There's no murder, he's alive. I demand to be free. And so we can say, we have been guilty of the death of Christ. We nailed him to that cross. As I look at him, I see there my own life. My autobiography has been written. The pen, the nails, the blood, the ink, the skin, the parchment. I'm guilty of that death. And on Easter Sunday morning when he rises from the dead, I can say, See, he's alive! I'm free! That's the meaning of agape, of love, 
Now I'll come back to what I said at the beginning. Is it true now that anything is all right provided you love? No. What kind of love? Eros? Erotic? Philia? Agape? And this is the love to which we are committed. Not just a sentimental love. But the love for the unlovable. For those who are anti-love. It is interesting, I don't know, should, no, should I go into this or not? So the story of St. Peter. Hmm? Well, I was going to conclude, but I will go into this love scene. I was at the spot myself. As a matter of fact, you have a picture of it. I was at the Sea of Galilee, where there are two great rocks. The Sunday after Easter, our blessed Lord appeared at that spot, because the Gospel of John tells us that our Lord came to the shore where there was a fire and bread near the fire. Seven men were fishing in the boat. Our Lord said to them, Have you caught anything? Now remember, this is the Sunday after the resurrection. Keep that in mind. The Sunday after the resurrection. They could dimly perceive in the morning mist a figure. And John said, It's the Lord, the risen Lord. And Peter was there and he, he'd been naked in the boat and he put something around him, plunges into the sea and swims a hundred yards to get to our Lord. But then, as we read this story, we find that Peter is back in the boat in a little while, dragging in the net with 153 fishes. Why, if our Peter was so anxious to see our Lord, that he plunged into the sea, why did he go back to the boat? Because of that fire. Those tongues of fire were eloquent tongues. They were reminders of a fire of ten nights before, when three girls, one after another, came up to Peter and said to him, Have you been with the Master? He says, I don't even know the man. And they reminded him of the night he denied our blessed Lord and he couldn't stand the fire. Those flames were like the fire of hell and he plunged again into the deep. Then when he came back, the Lord asks him three times, Do you love me? Now listen carefully. 
There were two in the original gospel, two Greek words that were used in the conversation. One word was philine, philia. The other was agape. I'm going to translate philia by natural human love. I'm going to translate agape by a totally divine, sacrificial, committed love. The conversation is as follows. Simon, son of John, do you love me with the divine, totally committed, sacrificial kind of love? And Peter, who had denied our Lord three times, was not going out on any more limbs, and he said, Lord, you know that I love you in a natural, human, friendly kind of way. Second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me with a divine, totally committed, sacrificial love? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you in a human, natural, friendly kind of way. The third time, our Lord said, Simon, son of John, do you love me in a natural, human, friendly kind of way? And Peter was sad because the Lord seemed to doubt the other. But the Lord reached down and took the little love that he had and told him to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. And this is the beautiful story of the two meanings of love as they are in the gospel. And may you carry away in the meditation of this evening the kind of love to which you are committed in the gospel. And you will always think of that word agape when you see it in reference to the love of our blessed Lord. You know, my good people, we never find perfect love here. Never. Every woman promises a man a love that only God can give. And every man promises a woman a love that only God can give. We try to relive the beautiful moments of love, but they cannot be relived, they cannot be recaptured. Why? Because it was not the moment, it was not ourselves, it was the divine that was shooting through us. It was a moment of eternity making use of human love to remind us that our love is not the source of love. All that we ever get are fractions, sparks of love, that's all. Sparks that have fallen from the great heart of love, which is God. When you understand this mystery, then you will also grasp why your heart is not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. Remember the valentine heart? Always perfect in shape. Your heart isn't that shape. Yours heart is not perfect. There seems to be a little piece missing out of the side of every human heart.
that maybe to symbolize a peace that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is that when God made the heart of each and every one of you, he found it so good and so fine and so lovable that he kept a small sample of it in heaven. And then he sent that heart into this world where you would try to capture all the love you could, but where you could never really love with your whole heart because you haven't a whole heart to love with. And you'll never be perfectly happy, never be wholehearted, never be really at peace until you go back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. God love you.